Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, Friday the 19th of July, 2013. And this is episode 1168 of the Survival Podcast. Sometimes it's kind of crazy when I start to think about the episode number and how humble this thing started and how big it's gotten. And sometimes I think I forget to at least once a week say thank you to you guys for being on this ride with me and making it what it's become and being the community that is the Survival Podcast. I'm just the guy that gets on the mic and, and screams and yells on, on certain days and, and tries to get really deep on other days and just does the show part. TSP is not me. TSP is the community, and it wouldn't exist without all of you listening and sharing the show. So let me just pause on this Friday to say thank you to everyone who's ever listened to even one episode of the show, and especially to anybody who's ever told anybody else about the show, because that is the reason we're successful. Thank you very much. But it is Friday, and this show is the show that's all about you. These are the things that you call in to ask about. Occasionally somebody says, do you get too many calls on blank? Well, then call in on something else, you know, and if you call from a quiet place, if you have some bars on your cell phone, and uh, if your, your topic is actually TSP-related or survival podcast-related in any way, shape, or form, you got about a 30 to 40% chance of getting your call on the air. Um, I do have something to say today to two people. Number one, guys called in a couple times now on a muddy pond issue. I am looking for a council member to answer that for you. I've sent it to one person I never heard back from. I've sent it to another person today, so I'm trying to get you an answer because I think that I am not the best person to talk about clearing up a muddy pond. Second guy that called in this week, called in, you're an Air Force vet, you're about to retire. You mentioned you had a master's degree or you're pursuing a master's degree and something about the Russian language and everything and being marked when you get out. Please redo your call and tell me what the hell you do in the Air Force. Um, I want to help you, but if I'm going to help you be marketable, knowing the job you've done for the last 19 years with one more to go before you get out would be very, very helpful, far more helpful than the fact you have a degree and are pursuing a master's degree in Russian or Spanish or something like that. I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying that like I have an incomplete picture right now, so I can't answer your question. So I do want you guys to be very brief with your calls. I want you to be detailed, and I want you to be to the point. So, But then don't don't hold back on the details following that. So the way you do a call, and you get most chance of being on the air and addressed, is you say, Jack, my question is, bam. And you just ask it in one sentence. Right Or my comment is, bam, and you give it in one sentence, and then follow it with details. Uh, but in certain instances, there's really key critical details. So sometimes I think I'm too tough on that formula, and maybe that makes people leave things out. It's a good idea if your call is complex. And what do I do after I retire from the military? Complex. That's complex. Then maybe you sit down, write your question, and then write certain bullet points of details. Read your question verbatim and then just look at your bullet points and just go. Um, it'll help you a lot. 
I'm not trying to make you on-air talent or anything. I'm just trying to make sure that I get enough information to give you a full answer. And uh, unlike Mr. Harris, who gets a couple of these a week, I get tons of them uh, from this audience, so I can't just pick the phone up and call everybody that calls in and, and get all the details the way that Steve will uh, on occasion. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and get into our show. Before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day, number one today. Who is it? The anticipation's killing me. It's Backyard Food Production with Marjorie Wildcraft and the DVD Growing Your Groceries. Check her out today. GrowingYourGroceries.com slash TSP will get you a discount. If you are in the Member Support Brigade, you can get an even better discount. Just go to your Member Support Brigade and click on the special link that I ask you not to share publicly back there in the MSB. And you get an even better deal for Marjorie on the two-DVD set growing your groceries. Check it out. If you want to know how to turn your backyard into a food production machine, Marjorie Wildcraft and Backyard Food Production is the people to see. If you go to the website, by the way, and click on today's sponsor link or on Marjorie's banner in the right-hand margin, you don't have to worry about clicking the right link. I already got it set up for you to get your discount. Next up today, survival gear bags. Let me tell you a true, honest-to-God true story. This morning, I got an email from Kelly John Doe of Survival Gear Bags, who also runs a TSP gear shop. And uh, it was to me and, and Glenn Tate, because we sell Glenn's books uh, through the TSP Gear Shop. And uh, so he sent me this email that said, my daughter is so happy that we now run uh, our, you know, our business out of the house. Because she was sitting with him helping pack up some back orders of some stuff that they had, had back ordered because of a stocking issue. So Kelly John Doe is part of this community, and he said all because one redneck climbed into a Jetta one day and started screaming at America or something like that. You know, that this is where his business is today. And I tell you that because I can tell you that Survival Gear Bags has great stuff. I can tell you that Survival Gear Bags does such a good job that I, I gave Kelly the gear shop in addition to having him as a sponsor. But when I can tell you that his daughter is working in a business, his very young daughter, I think she's six or something like that, and is happy and excited in learning entrepreneurialism because somebody in our community saw the opportunity and took it. I think that's actually a bigger story. I think that's a bigger reason that the next time maybe you need something like a gear bag that you check out Survival Gear Bags first. Right out of our community, um, good folks, do a great job, great stuff. Check them out today, survivalgearbags.com. I also want to remind you guys about the Walking the Freedom Forum. We've had a couple of people step up as moderators and our moderators on the forum. Please don't send me an email and go, I can do this or that or whatever you want. Tell me what you want to do. If, you, if you're all over the map with emails, folks, I can't read a book. I don't need a book. Um, so there was a couple of people yesterday that inquired about it. I looked at your email. I didn't know what you were talking about. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be a jerk, but it was just like, I, what do you want, right? I want to be the moderator for Board X. I am interested in being a moderator for the entire forum. My username is, okay, and if you want to give me some details, do it after that. If, if I look at an email, especially in a week where I'm getting back from a trip, and it's got like five paragraphs in it, it's, it's white noise. I'm not being a jerk. I'm trying to help you help me. Uh, but I'd love to see more activity over at Walking to Freedom. Uh, please, if you are leaving or have left, Please try to get some goodbye letters into the Nautilus boards before I turn on the PR machine with this site. I'd like there to be at least a letter or two in all of the Nautilus forums. Uh, don't invent one, but I think there's enough of you guys. And if you already left, let's say you walked from New York a, a year ago or five years ago, you can still write your goodbye letter. 
You probably didn't do it when you left. So let's try to get some goodbye letters at walkingfreedom.com. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. Help support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service. And first responders like paramedics, EMTs, and firefighters. <laughs> Sorry, guys. It's been a long week. Firefighters, you guys all qualify for a service discount. Email me with service discount in the subject line. Tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did if your prior service is in two sentences or less. And I will respond to you with uh, a discount code to save you even more on a product that saves you a ton of money already. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take first call. F sorry for a couple fumbles in today's introduction section, guys. Again, uh, I'm going to do a, a podcast very soon on what I learned from Dave Jackie at the uh, Forest Garden Design uh, thing. But uh, Jackie's an intense guy is the way that Ben Falk put it to me, and he is. And I think I need another week maybe to take it all in before I, we talk about that. Anyway, first call of the day. Hi, Jack. Robert from Manitoba. just have a comment about kids and guns. I just finished listening to episode 1150. The part about teaching kids about guns struck a chord with me. I have a few rifles and I'm an avid airsoft player. When my daughter was growing up, I was swayed by the mainstream ideals and I was always careful to never mention guns in front of her and never showed her anything other than a locked case if I was going out for the day. Even my airsoft is transported in a locked case. While well, one night at the supper table, when my then three-year-old blurts out something in the word gun. My wife shoots me a dirty look, and I explained that I had been diligent to never mention guns or firearms in front of her. After some questioning from my wife, we found out that she'd been watching Looney Tunes at my in-laws. Elmer Fudd and Yosemite Sam were teaching my daughter about guns. After that incident, I made a bit more effort to teach my daughter properly about guns. One thing I found was the nut and fancy video called Children of the Gun. It's long-winded like all of his videos, but the four progressive levels of training are similar to what you talked about. My daughter and I now do target shooting with Nerf guns, and she also now has a Disney bow and arrow from the movie Brave. Keep fighting for liberty, Jack. Cheers. Can I be completely honest and tell you that I, I really didn't feel very good about your wife, that she shot you a dirty look? Um, and, and, and your explanation of what you found out after is exactly why. Um, I, I'm trying to be as nice as I can with this, but I, I do think maybe a lot of you guys out there that are dealing with women with this attitude might want to consider saying, hey, this guy can be a bit of a jerk, but I think he's making a good point here, and ask your wife, if she's not a regular listener, to listen to the question and the answer that I'm about to give. This attitude that guns are to be not talked about, not spoken of, not looked at is irrational, okay? And if you think it will keep your children from knowing about guns, there is only one word I can give you for, for the attitude you're, you're holding with that one thought. Not in your whole life, just that one thought. And that word is delusional. It's completely delusional to believe you can shelter your children from the knowledge that guns exist, okay? And this is true of many things that we want to shelter our children from knowing about. Now, a three-year-old, I don't think a three-year-old needs a long, drawn-out conversation about guns, but completely hiding the fact that they exist, putting an airsoft gun in a locked case, a bit much. And, and exactly why. So this kiddo 
is probably not watching, you know, all kinds of crazy Hollywood movies with people getting blown away or anything, but good old-fashioned Looney Tunes, Yosemite Sam and Elmer Fudd have guns. And when Yosemite Sam shoots his guns into the ground, he lifts up in the air. And when when Elmer Fudd shoots Daffy Duck in the face with a shotgun, his beak speaks around, spins around, where he spits pellets out, but he's okay, and they do it again and again and again. These are not the way that guns actually work. What you're learning from that is that guns are toys. Unless it's tempered with the knowledge, right? If you know that hitting a hammer on somebody's head will kill them, but on TV when the Three Stooges do it, it's funny because you know it's slapstick, right? The knowledge of one begats the humor in the other. You have to have a totality of knowledge. Now, why was it completely acceptable for Bugs Bunny to trick Daffy Duck and get him shot in the face by Elmer Fudd just a few you know, decades ago? And it was always on TV. Kids watched it every Saturday. And no kid ever shot any other kid in the face with a shotgun because they thought it was funny. Why? Because kids knew about guns. Everybody knew what a gun was. This mentality of shelter, 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 teacup, teacup, teacup did not exist. For those that are new to the show and don't know what I say when I mean when I say teacup, it's the larger problem. Sheltering your children from everything that causes them discomfort, fixing every problem for them, is created a teacup generation. And we now have a generation of teacups raising more teacups. Now we have like the China generation. I don't mean China the country. Like we had the teacups that were like regular old teacups. And now we have like the next generation is like the freaking good China. You can't even set it down without putting a nick in it. Right? You have to be very, very careful with the good China, all right? That's what's going on. And this is just one piece of that. The way to make children understand and respect guns is to have honest conversations about them with, about them, about guns with them. And it does need to start early. As early as you start this, you don't put your finger in that hole because it can kill you. All right? In your house, there's little holes all over the place. They look kind of like a smiley face with a O instead of a smile. They, whoever designed the original plug was an idiot. It looks very attractive to a baby. Right? So, yeah, we might put little stoppers in there to baby through our house when we get a new baby and all. But as soon as the kid's old enough to communicate, we start explaining that because it's dangerous. We don't hide it because it's dangerous. We explain it. Because it's dangerous. When they're little bitty and they're just learning to walk and run, we try to figure out where all the sharp corners are and put something on them or get them out of the way. But as soon as they get old enough, you realize I can't protect them from every corner for the rest of their life. So because sharp corners are dangerous, we explain sharp corners. They get a little bit older, they start working out in the wood shop with Dad. They learn what a saw is. A saw is sharp. If you use it wrong, it'll cut your finger right off. So we explain the danger. We don't hide the saw. Eventually, they get old enough to drive a car. More people are killed in cars than by any other anything else in the United States every year. But we don't say, oh, you can't go in a car. We teach them about both the good and the danger. We don't shelter them. We don't say, cars are completely safe, Johnny. You have airbags all around your ass. Nothing can happen to you. We say, you can die or you can kill somebody with a car. We teach them about the good and the bad. We teach them about the positive and the danger. Here's the bigger message. At three, yes, Elmer Fudd and Yosemite Sam are teaching your kids about guns. 
But by seven or eight, if you don't teach your children about guns, mainstream media is teaching your children about guns. And ladies out there, they're like, I just don't understand, and I just don't want one, and they're dangerous, and I don't want one in my house, and I've let my husband, I've let my husband have one. Ugh. And, 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 but they have to be locked up, and, uh, and, yeah, okay, right, when somebody breaks in your house to rape you, you won't want your husband's gun locked up. But do you know why you feel that way? Because your parents didn't teach you about guns. You didn't learn about guns. Therefore, you fear them irrationally, and the people that educated all, educated you on guns are, dun dun dun, the mainstream media. Yes, the mainstream Hollywood media that wants you to be afraid of guns, but puts them in every other movie where the good guy always blows away the bad guy. But it's okay for them, but not you, because guns never solve a problem. Unless it's in a movie that we're making, but that's not real. But yes, it is. This one's based on real life. Even though we altered the storyline so it benefits a president. Oh, am I talking about the, oh, uh, the Bin Laden assassination? Yep. Yep, that movie where they blow away Bin Laden is not based in fact. But it was put out like it was based in fact. But see, that's okay because it meets the agenda of some and not the agenda of others. And therefore, it divides us as a country. I have a question on the Second Amendment a little bit later on. So I'm not going to talk about the right to keep and bear arms here. What I'm going to simply say is that a gun is a tool. And you can say it's dangerous. But if you look around your home, there's hundreds of things in the average home that are dangerous. Electricity being among them. Knives being among them. Car keys being among them. Do you hide the car keys from your kiddo? They have access to a multi-ton machine that can run people over. That's what keys are for. Most people actually have extra keys to let kids play with. Because the only problem with the kid having the keys is they do something with them. And when you need them, you can't find them. Right? So... We need to open up our freaking minds and remember who we were just a few decades ago. And a few decades ago, a cartoon about a duck being shot in the face with a shotgun could be funny because the kid watching it knew that's not what shotguns are for, that's not what would really happen, and it was slapstick. Just like when Mo used to take the saw and drag it across Curly's head. And for 50 years, no kid ever did anything like that. And then in the 80s, we started having kids popping up, doing the things they saw on TV. Why? Because we started sheltering them from reality. And when you shelter somebody from reality, the line between fantasy and reality becomes very blurry, very fast, especially in the developing mind of a child. If you want your children to be safe from guns, then they need to know about guns. Because if you think that you will shelter them from the very existence of a gun, you won't. And if you think they'll never get a chance at any time in their life to ever put their hands on a gun, you are wrong. It will happen at some point, and you need to teach them about it. If you lived in a place where when kids played in the park, there was a, a possibility that they would run into a venomous snake, you would teach them to, look, to know what to look for and to not touch the snake. Okay? And you would also teach them that the snake has a place, a reason for being there. Unless you're delusional, you wouldn't try to kill every single one of them. Now you might decide certain ones of them that are problem need to go away, and maybe there's no place to put them other than, you know, if it's a rattlesnake in a fry basket. But you wouldn't go on a rattlesnake eradication program to eliminate every rattlesnake on the planet because the rattlesnake has a purpose. In nature, it's a tool. Okay, In our society, the gun is a tool. It has a purpose. It can defend you. And you ladies that have that, oh, they're just dangerous. I'm telling you, 
You know what's more dangerous? No gun and somebody breaking in your house. And you know what's dangerous? A gun in your house, you're afraid of the gun, and somebody's breaking in your house, and your old man ain't there. That's equally dangerous. You might as well not have the gun at all. And don't believe that you're five times more likely to kill a family member with a gun than to... <sighs> Listen, everybody knows that nine out of ten statistics are made up. You get the joke? Okay. Don't buy into their bullshit. Your family is worth protection. And the reason I carry a gun is because a whole cop is too heavy. Anyway, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Uh, this is Chris from Massachusetts. I've got an expert panel question for Stephen Harris. Uh, looking online, I've found plans for uh, using a lawnmower engine and an alternator from a car to build what amounts to a 12-volt generator. Uh, Efficiency-wise, would this be equivalent efficiency better than or worse than using an EC generator and a three-stage charger? Um, could it also possibly damage my battery bank? Um, it seems to me like it would be a good, a good system for recharging my battery bank during the day uh, so that I can run the silent run deep at night. I would appreciate uh, any input you have on this. Thank you very much. And with that, let's hear from uh, Mr. Harris. And then I've got another Harris question that wasn't called in, and we'll talk about that a bit before uh, we get an answer. But Her Mr. Harris, 12-volt generators built with an alternator. Hi, this is Steve Harris with the Expert Panel. Thanks for calling in with such a really great question. Well, first, I get this a lot, and we got to get this out of the way. Is it more efficient? Okay? Instead of actually doing something, people get paralyzed and moved into inaction and doing nothing by the worry is if something is more efficient than the other and then the end result is they end up with nothing because they're always worried about oh I gotta have it more efficient you know, how efficient is nothing you gotta have something good today better tomorrow get good today and do it okay now I get this a lot with people wanting to hook up 12 volt LEDs to their battery bank because it's more efficient and they think they are losing something going from 12 volts to inverter to 120 volt LED light which goes back to DC. Yeah, this is a classic battle going back to the late 1800s with Thomas Edison and DC current versus Nikolai Tesla and AC current. This is it, okay? DC does not go very far, especially low voltage DC. AC goes all the way across the country. I'll put this into perspective as I answer your question. And also, you are not going to wire your entire house for 12-volt LED lights and run a, run bigger copper, separate copper, all to save a few minuscule percentage points of efficiency. Running your Keurig coffee maker to make a cup of coffee would be the equivalent of running a 12-volt LED light for 500 hours and you're worried about a few percentage points of efficiency. Uh, let's put this in perspective, people. Buy the inexpensive LED lights that run off 120, screw them into your existing sockets, run extension cords, it works. So it's not really a question of what's more efficient, it's a question of what is best for you. And this is my main concern with everyone who calls in questions. What is the best for you? And this is primary, is this your primary gasoline to energy generator or is it your backup? Is this DC Jenny going to be your two is one, one is none generator? 
Let's look at the idea of hooking up a car alternator to a lawnmower engine, okay? It works. It's a good idea. It's simple. There is a company that makes very nice brackets. They're cut out of sheet metal, sheet steel, okay? Not sheet metal out of sheet steel. And they allow you to hook up your alternator to an engine, whether it's a vertical shaft lawnmower engine or like a horizontal shaft regular engine like you buy from Harbor Freight for 100 bucks or 200 bucks. The place is called theepicenter.com. T-H-E-E-P-I-C-E-N-T-E-R.com. Now, their website is really a throwback to year 2000. It's hard to navigate. They got a bunch of stuff there that I really don't want you to buy. It's not top-of-the-line stuff that is tried and tested like I've done for you on solar1234.com. But... I'll tell you they have a very nice set of generator brackets. Probably the only place in the United States that has a set of generator brackets this nice, and they make them. Uh, they're also very famous for these brackets, so I recommend them. It's not easy to find the exact page that the brackets are made, so I made a direct link to you for it to you. It is, if you go to tinyurl.com, forward slash epicenter e-p-i-c-e-n-t-e-r gen g-e-n all one word no spaces epicenter gen this will get you to the right page now is it more efficient that would be a 30 minute answer and would require me to brain dump a lot of electrical theory to you let's ask a better question does it work yes it works but you have to understand, it's DC voltage. It's only 13.8 volts. It's not 120 volts. So first the motor and the alternator are going to have to sit outside of the house, and then you're going to have to run cables to your battery bank. Since the alternator could dump up to 80 to 100 amps into the battery bank, if the bank is low enough and can take that much power, you have to have cables the size of jumper cables to hook up the 12-volt jenny to your batteries. And since jumper cables are expensive and only about 25 feet long at the most, and buying the equivalent wire at Home Depot, I mean, zero-gauge wire is not cheap either, this will work if your batteries are close to the generator. In other words, your batteries will be in your garage. Now, what did I teach you about batteries in the three-hour TSP battery show that I did with Jack, which you can listen to at battery1234.com. I told you to treat your batteries better than your dog. If you would not leave your dog out in the garage in the heat and the cold, don't put your batteries there either. They want to be in your house or in your basement at a good temperature. So right away, having the DC generator is not a great idea because your batteries are going to be in a bad place. But maybe your batteries are in the basement like mine are. And you can make a nice hole in the side of your house and make a good hookup to run to the DC generator, DC Jenny. I did this, okay? I'm guilty. So could you do this? I used a Lister diesel engine, which you can no longer get in the United States, thanks to the EPA and Obama, and a big semi-truck alternator with batteries and an inverter. In fact, I not only had the whole thing at my house, I put the thing in the back of my pickup truck, and I traveled around the United States with my little 14-foot camper in the early 2000s. 
in Iran, the generator all the time and ran AC in the desert. Anyways, I can show you pictures. But it was the backbone of my power backup at my old house. So I can't throw rocks because I did it. But I had two cables, the thickness of my finger, coming out of the house so I could hook it to my DC generator. So if you have a DC generator set up, it can only run outside. It has to be close to the batteries. You'll make your AC power from an inverter and only from an inverter. It has no intelligence to it. It just spins and makes 13.8 volts and dumps raw current into the batteries. As the batteries fill up, it'll dump less and less current until the batteries are charged. If you have an AC generator outside, a regular generator, it can sit outside and it can power a great deal of things in your house, and you only have to run off extension cords to things you want to power. Okay, it's just, you know, you start the generator, you run the extension cord, you plug in your refrigerator, plug in the TV, plug in, uh, you know, the microwave, and plug in a few other things, your cell phone charger, etc., and you're running, okay? Just, there's, that's that simple. So, I mean, AC goes a long way. So your generator can be 100 and 200 feet away, and the you know extension cables are off the shelf at Walmart, Home Depot. You know, easy peasy. So while you run on the surface, you are running your generator. You have a 120 volt cord going to your charger next to your batteries and dumping current into your batteries. So you really want a 30, 45, or 55 amp charger if you're running off AC to your batteries to do this effectively. Otherwise, the generator is burning gas, and you might only be putting 6 or 8, 10 amps into your batteries. That is not a good use of energy. Again, all of this details about using energy and everything else and batteries and generators, okay, it's all on my website I gave you. Go listen to those shows. Also, all of these chargers I mentioned, they're going to, I got them available for you to on the website I mentioned. I got from 6 amp to the 55 amp chargers for you to pick. And you can look at them all. I have used them all. I own them all. They're all Harris approved. Now, since these plates from the Epicenter only cost 25 bucks, if you got a motor laying around and you got a good alternator around and you can, or you can get one cheap, like alternator for 50 bucks, then put one of these together. You can always take one of your batteries from your bank and take it take it outside to the DC generator and hook it up to the battery, hook it up to the inverter, and run that power into the house. No, you can't hook an alternator directly to an inverter. Don't ask. You can't do it. you got to have the alternator, the battery, and then the inverter. And then you could run the AC from the DC generator, Jenny, and the battery and the inverter outside into your house, okay? It'll look like something from the clampets of the Beverly Hillbillies, but having power in a blackout from a hillbilly DC generator is a lot slicker than being in the dark with only one candle and being miserable. Now, if you have to buy the bracket for 25 bucks. Buy an alternator for 89 bucks or more. Then go to Harbor Freight and buy an engine for 119 bucks. These are all real world prices. I looked them up, guys. You are just better off going to Harbor Freight and buying a $129 800-watt AC generator, okay? You need to run some, if you need to run some lights and a fan, start it up and run it. You need to run your 55-inch flat screen, start to generate and run it because it's your only TV, then hook it up and run it. At the same time, you want to dump energy into your battery bank for when you want to run silent, run deep off when the generator's off. 
Now, maybe you'll want to put some more money into it and get a $500 or more generator that has 240 volts as well as 120 volts that you can feed your entire circuit panel, which I describe in the TSP show, the previously mentioned website. It's the generator shows one and two. Uh, especially generator show number two tells you how to hook up to the house, legal, illegal, and all the other good ways. Um, that way you can dump some cold into your refrigerator, your freezer, you can run the microwave as well as the pump, take a shower, make breakfast, turn off the generator, run off your battery until the evening dinner, and we turn the generator back on for a few hours. I've given you the speech before. I can't give you one specific answer because all of you are different. You all have different opportunity costs, things you can do with your money that will have more benefit than it would for someone else. Remember the same damn thing as that DC Jenny you're talking about is sitting in your car right now, in your driveway right now, already built and ready to go. You just have to put on a pair of jumper cables onto the battery in your car and turn the key on, and you can do exactly the same thing. Or you can put an inverter on the battery under your hood and do the same thing right now. No building, no construction, but... You know what? If it's one of your 13 skills and you want to improve yourself and make this Jenny with the kit from the Epicenter, I am not going to discourage you from doing it. I just want you to know the limitations and the expectations you can get from it. Now, as to the question of will this damage your battery bank, if it runs in your car for if the same thing runs in your car for 200,000 miles and it's hooked up to the, your car battery, why would it hurt your battery bank? The answer is no, it won't hurt your battery bank. Also, the DC Jenny is not going to have any auto throttle or speed control, like how a regular AC generator adjusts for the load and speeds up and slows down. Your DC generator has a throttle setting on it, and it's where you put the throttle is where it runs. Okay, It's not going to adjust. There's no feedback mechanism. So even if your battery bank is only going to take 10 amps of charging because it's nearly full, your DC Jenny will be sitting there and spinning and spinning and spinning and burning fuel at whatever the throttle is set at. Okay? So you kind of don't know, you don't know where your battery bank is and how much power it can take. You don't know where to put the, the DC Jenny. But again, we've talked about two is one, one is none. If this is a project you want to do it, go ahead. I'd not do this personally in my professional Opinion. Sorry, not my professional opinion. My professional professional expert expertise and experience. I'd not do this as your primary generator. I'd do it as a backup. Your two is one is one none. And only then if you have the parts laying around and you just needed the bracket from Epicenter. And remember, you have to be close to your battery bank with DC and have thick cables, and you won't have any charging intelligence. You will have a simple system, though. One motor, one alternator, wire and batteries. Okay, that's pretty straightforward, and it's pretty KISS. Keep it simple, stupid. Okay? Versus having an AC generator uh, with a cable running to an intelligent computer-controlled charger and the batteries, one is simpler than the other. So... Again, I'll leave it up to you guys. Leave some of your questions and your comments on the TSP forum. Again, this is Steve Harris for the expert panel. Thank you very much for calling in your questions. I enjoy them all the time. All of my previous shows and everything I have done with Jack is at solar1234.com. Talk to you guys later. All right. Well, incredibly thorough is as is typical. And I have another question for Steve that I'm going to let him uh, answer that is – Far less uh, involved, a little bit 
um, a little bit less uh, detailed. Uh, but it's a question I get a lot of. Now, the question comes in a lot, which is why I'm doing it. And um, it, it's one that I just think we, we, we're going to answer and we're going to be done with it. Um, it, it. Here's the question. If, a hook, if I hook up an inverter to my Toyota, Toyota Prius or other hybrid vehicle, is this essentially the same as building a mobile battery bank in a truck per Stephen Harris? How can I discover if the inverter is pulling from the full hybrid battery bank or just a smaller battery somewhere under the hood? Details. I've already built one battery backup system based on the episode and videos from Steve Harris. You both make a great team. Now I'm starting to look at my car and creating a mobile battery backup system. Obviously, I'm go not going to put batteries in the trunk of my car, but I did some research and it appears some people are hooking inverters directly to the hybrid batteries in the trunk of their vehicles. None of the sources I found are comprehensive in the TSP Harris style, so I don't know if they are thinking this all the way through. Um, here we go. Steve, what do you say to this? Vince, thanks for uh, writing in. Uh, this is Steve Harris with the expert panel with your quick answer, and this is going to be a quick one. Okay, Prius, it's battery pack. Forget it. Don't touch it. There's not a damn thing you're going to do with it, okay? You're probably going to get yourself electrocuted. Uh, i got to go look it up. It's like 300-some-odd volts, okay? Forget it. There's nothing you can do with it. Now, Priuses do have a cute little trick that you can do with inverters that make them really, really sweet. You go and you plug an inverter to your 12-volt battery on the Prius, and then you go and turn the Prius on, which for all you guys, that's not starting it. You're just turning it on. The Prius will monitor the voltage of the 12-volt battery. As the voltage of the 12-volt battery drops because you're using it, it'll either recharge the battery, 12-volt battery, from its 300-volt battery pack system, or it will start the engine to recharge the battery for you, and then it'll shut it off when it's charged. So it's really pretty darn automatic and pretty nice and pretty simple. It's slick, okay? And there was actually a guy who had an article about him who did this during Hurricane Sandy. It's like 300,000 people read it or something. But um, regular cars work just fine. The Prius has this little trick. Now, if you have a regular car and you would like this feature in your regular car to turn it on and turn it off, some of the better alarm systems out there have a mode for the car called airport mode. And this is like if you had your car parked in an airport parking lot for three months because you were gone someplace and the battery was going to go down. You put the car in the um, alarm system into airport mode, it monitors your battery. When your battery goes down, it starts the car to recharge the battery for you. And when the battery's charged, it turns off the car. This will be completely installed by you for you by the alarm installers, and it'll be for your vehicle. So you can do the same thing that you can do with the Prius with your regular vehicle with like a three to $500 alarm system going into your vehicle. It, it really is kind of neat. It does, you don't have to go out and start your vehicle and look at the voltage and everything. Kind of slick. So whether you got a Prius or you want to do this on a regular vehicle, go for it, but that's how you do it. Hook up to the 12-volt battery, turn the Prius on, and use your inverter. And remember, it's not a lightsaber. This is Steve Harris for the Expert Panel. Thanks so much for your question. All my previous stuff I've done with Jack is at solar1234.com. See you guys. Hey, Jack Matthew from Tucson, the Warrior Hunter on the forums. Had a pretty open-ended question for you about the Zimmerman trial and the recent verdict came down. that came down. I uh, just wondered if you had any thoughts about it. Um, you've got a great way of looking at things, and we've hashed it around on the forum for a little bit and, you know, what we think. And 
mostly I'm curious about uh, what can we learn from this. You know, uh, I think obviously Zimmerman did a lot of things wrong. Uh, in the end, we'll never know exactly what happened. But in terms of those of us that carry, uh, you know, firearms for personal protection, uh, you know, what can we learn from this? And um, also, if you want to go there, you know, just how, how badly this trial spun out of control, you know, based on the media perception and then the stuff that was crammed down our throats from the mainstream media. So uh, if you want to field this one, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Uh, thanks for the show and everything you do. Have a good one. Well, it's a, uh, it's a good question, and it's one that, unlike most mental midgets uh, in both mainstream and alternative media, I've kind of kept my mouth shut on until now. And there's a reason. When the thing first came out, and I heard the audio tape, where it, it sounds like Zimmerman calls the 911 operator, says this guy looks like he's up to no good, he looks black. Something didn't fit. Something just didn't seem right about that. And not long after that, we figured out that a major news network in the United States of America purposely altered a 911 call to change the entire paradigm. And once I heard that, I knew that it didn't matter what really happened, that the only way we would get to the bottom of it is independent investigation. And if there was a trial by, uh, by having a jury of the man's peers make a decision following our law to the letter of the law. That at that point, everything had been so corrupted and so distorted and so destroyed. And there's so many people out there right now protesting and screaming about justice for Trayvon that don't even know that that happened. They still, in their mental midget heads, think that that's how it went down. They think that original recording is what happened. It's pathetic. It's absolutely 100% pathetic. Okay? It really is. And you know what's equally pathetic? People on the other side of the issue just saying, he had to kill him, he had no choice. He, you know, like, just saying, like, they're cut and dry that Zimmerman was innocent before we got to the end of the trial. This is the truth. As onlookers, we don't know. But let me tell you whose behavior here is worthy either of civil suit or criminal prosecution. Number one, the person that put out the story with the 911 tape originally and whoever gave it editorial approval should both be put in jail for a, at least a misdemeanor of disrupting public trust or whatever that is. They should spend at least a week in jail for it. Because a, lo because a lot of the violence and a lot of like the busted windows and shit all go back to that. They caused that with irresponsible behavior, and I would say with a word we're going to use in a minute, with malice aforethought, which means they intended to do what they did. They did it on purpose. Okay, So that right there, George Zimmerman, should get his attorney, who's obviously good at what he does, to spin right around 180 now that the criminal stuff is over for, for a time anyway. We'll talk about that in a second. And immediately bring a lawsuit on those individuals and the network. Let me say it again, the individuals and the network, because his life is totally ruined at this point, and they are responsible more than anyone else for that, because they distorted the facts intentionally. They should be sued... And if I was the Zimmerman family, I would sue for enough money to move somewhere where no one knows who they are and live the rest of their lives peacefully and comfortably on that money. And if I was sitting on a jury, at this point, I would definitely say that they have a case and they should be rewarded for that. I don't even care what really happened. 
I don't care if the man's guilty or innocent. The malice that was done intentionally there with the altering of that audio is disgusting. For those who don't know what I mean, they play an audio that says he looks like he's up to no good. He looks black. Or he looks like he's a problem. He looks black. Something like that, right? And then when you hear the whole tape, it's like, yeah, he looks like he's doing this. He looks like he's doing that. And they say, well, what does he look like, sir? Well, he's a male. What color is he? He looks black. So he's answering the operator, and they edited that out. And literally, the person that approved that should not just spend a week in jail, should not just be sued into oblivion, should be smacked in the freaking face. And anybody who experienced property damage because of this should be handed a bat and be able to hit this man in the ass with a bat just to get some satisfaction out of their busted store windows or what have you. Okay, So that's guilty party one there. And then the media as a whole. As I listened to this... It sounded like it was a sporting event. Well, he did a really great job on his opening remarks, Bob. What do you think? I think this was one of the most stunning openings we've ever seen. I mean, this kind of shit? With, I mean, that was the voices being used. And they weren't worried about whether the guy was guilty or innocent. Who did better? Which attorney did better? Like it was, you know, two guys, you know, in, in, in two pitchers in a baseball game. Well, he's he's going low and hard with a slider today. I mean, that's how they covered this. And anybody out there who still gives these cl these clowns any credibility after watching this showcase, what's wrong with you? Turn off the turn off the mainstream news. Turn it off. Stop listening. And let me tell you why they do this. It's so much worse even than during, let's say, the OJ trial or just a few years ago, Casey Anthony. As bad as those types of things were, it's worse today. Do you know why? They're irrelevant and they know it. This is one of the few things that they can actually do stuff with that alternative media can't. They have press passes. They can get in. They can give live coverage. Anything else you want to know about, there's a blogger or a YouTuber doing a better job than mainstream media. Today. This is the only thing that people have to rely on them for anymore, so they hype it up. So that was a complete disaster. And trials should not be done this way, period. Period. George Zimmerman's attorney made a joke that didn't go over well. You know, do you know who George Zimmerman is? No, welcome to the jury. Right? That was the joke. But he was making a point. Even in that joke, he was making a point. It shouldn't be that hard to find people that don't know. But the media did this. All of the rappers and freaking people out there in, in entertainment that started tweeting bullshit, every single one of those people should have had their Twitter account shut down immediately. These people are inciting violence. I guarantee you if I did it and I incited violence with Twitter, Twitter would shut off my account. So they should have at least been shut down. Those people also should be sued by anybody that experienced any harm or any loss of property. I would bring, if I had a win window out of my store, I would sue every single person in that chain. And you know who else was completely irresponsible? Completely irresponsible. The President of the United States of America saying, if I had a son, he would look like Trevon. Making this national without knowing the facts. None of these people had enough common sense to shut their holes long enough to let the process work and see what happened. And thereby they corrupted the entire thing. And in the end, you had to find six people so sheltered they didn't know what the hell was going on. Alright, now let's talk about why I didn't just say the guy was innocent and what the man could have been guilty of, and what the two charges that were brought against him really mean. Second-degree murder. This is that he intended to kill him. I want him dead. 
Even if they're in a fight, even if he's losing, I want him dead, and you intend to kill. Even if you're in self-defense, even if you're in justifiable self-defense, the right attorney, the right DA can prosecute that as murder because it was the intention to kill. And when we're using self-defense, you never want to say I wanted him dead. <laughs> you know, I was defending myself, I was trying to stop an attack. Right? So the, the, the one charge would be, one way or another, they end up in a conflict, and Zimmerman wanted the kid dead. Okay, and I, I hate the fact that everybody keeps calling this young man a kid. Okay, this kid was a hell of a lot bigger than George Zimmerman. Right, we keep talking about him, and they show pictures of him when he was like seven years old. This kid was 17 years old and bigger than me. So we, we have to start acknowledging the physical difference, differences are, are not just based on one day switching from 17 to 18. This was a pretty big kid, and he and, and it. And I'll tell you what I think happened in a minute, but I want to tell you kind of what, what, where things went and how they went. So the jury has one possibility. George Zimmerman basically confronts this kid for whatever, it doesn't matter if he profiled him because he was black or because he profiled him because he's wearing a hoodie. Took the law into his own hands, got aggressive, and when the, when it turned into a physical conflict, was thinking in his mind, I'm gonna kill this son of a bitch when he pulled the gun out and shot him. Alright? What makes that different than first degree murder is he didn't look over there and go, there's a guy, I'm gonna go kill him. All right? It was kind of a heat of passion type of thing. You could actually take that to what's known as voluntary manslaughter as well. Okay, Voluntary manslaughter would be in, in the heat of the struggle he decided you want him dead. And it's a very, very gray line between second degree murder and voluntary manslaughter. It has a lot to do with what the prosecution thinks they can get done. Involuntary manslaughter would be like this. Let's say you went to uh, uh, a brake shop. You went to Just Breaks. You go in there and they say, your brakes are bad, man. They need to be replaced. And you believe it, but you don't have the money to get them fixed. And they say, look, it's one thing if you don't fix this. This car needs to go home and stay home and not go anywhere. This is a dangerous vehicle now. You could get in a wreck. And you say, I can't afford to not drive my vehicle. I'm just going to drive it anyway. You know you have bad brakes. You, you go through an intersection because your brakes fail. You run over somebody on a bicycle and you kill them. That would be involuntary manslaughter. You didn't intend to kill them. But what you did caused the death through recklessness. Okay, how would this apply in George Zimmerman's case? If if the prosecution could have proven that George Zimmerman initiated the conflict and initiated the fight, got aggressive and started a fight, and then turned around and killed the kid, even in self-defense, and he, even if you believe at that point the kid was going to beat him to death, he had to, he had to act to save his own life. Okay. It, the the shooting is now justified, okay? But the death is the fault of George Zimmerman for initiate. If you're armed, okay? If you're armed, you know you're armed. You know that if a conflict breaks out, you may have to use your gun. So you don't start a fight if you're armed. That's why people that carry are less likely, not more likely, to be in a fight. You have a a, a legal responsibility to avoid the conflict if you can. Right? Because if you're allowed to start the fight, begin to lose and pull your gun and shoot somebody, right? That's a problem. So that would be a manslaughter conviction. If the prosecution was smart, and if this was not a politically motivated trial, they would have only prosecuted for manslaughter here. Because you're judging the man's intention. You're mentally policing at a point where you have a very crumbly case to begin with. You didn't have, they did not have a hard case here. And why I say they would have been smart, Just looking at it as a lawyer would, 
You know, with no concern for what's right or wrong. Just say, what would be the smartest, if we're going to prosecute and we want to win, what would be the smartest thing? They would have prosecuted only for manslaughter. Here's why. They would have had a much more clear and concise case. They would have been only trying to prove one specific thing, not this or that. Okay? And I think the jury would have felt less likely to feel that he was prosecuted unjustly. Because as soon as they got to a point where maybe they all said, you know what, this is not second-degree murder. What happens if you're on a jury and you feel that way? Like, you know, it, with just a cursory understanding of the facts presented, uh, I can say for a fact, this is I'm going to vote not guilty on second-degree murder, period. In fact, if the prosecutor had made the case and the defense had said we have nothing to say, I still wouldn't convict the guy of second-degree murder. It, 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 you know what it does? It says... Why did they do that? And it starts to make the juror question the mentality of the prosecutor. So why'd they do it? They had to, in their minds, because if they didn't, the NAACP and Al Sharpen and Reggie, Jesse Jackson would have been screaming outrage before the thing even started. This must be murder. So people that are not part of the system of, of justice are making decisions for people in the system of justice. That's a complete catastrophe, and it's why I say we might not have gotten the right verdict. I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to tell you what I think happened, but I don't know what happened, and since I didn't sit through all of the juror deliberations and everything else, I don't have enough information to say for a fact. But we may, there may be a case here that this should have been a manslaughter conviction. I don't know. But I know that as soon as the, the prosecutor decided to go for second-degree murder, which I said long ago when I said I'm not going to talk about this till it's over, but I did say they'll do it and they'll never get a conviction of second-degree murder. I knew that going in. Hence, they knew that going in. And they thought, well, it would fall back to manslaughter or it would be like a, a, a push You know, kind of like a tie to a, a, a one-run a one win instead of a knockout, right? And then it would it would pacify everybody. It was the prosecutor trying to pacify everybody. Yeah, we prosecuted him for murder. No, we, we didn't get that. But yes, he's convicted. He's going to prison for at least a few years. You know, prison's going to be tough. Uh, he's going to be on probation for the rest of his life. We did our best. And it would, it would do the best to make everybody happy. That's why they did it. Okay, how this could have went down and been, yes, the guy's guilty. If George Zimmerman confronted Trayvon Martin and tried to detain him in any way or hold him or do anything where he put his hands on him or tell him he couldn't leave or say, I have a gun and you better not leave or anything like that, which we don't know if it happened or not, and it went to a physical conflict, then it's very probable that you're looking at a case where it is involuntary manslaughter. They got into a fight. He got in fear of his life. He drew his weapon. He pulled the trigger. He, it was incumbent upon him not to engage in a physical conflict that he initiated. That If I were on that jury, it would break my heart, but I would vote guilty if I believe that's what happened. Now I'm going to tell you what my gut tells me happened. From everything that I saw that came out in the trial that they put out and, and let us see. I believe that George Zimmerman was following Trayvon Martin. I believe he was doing it because there were a lot of burglaries in the area, and I do believe the fact that he was black probably made it more likely that George Zimmerman suspected him because the majority of the burglaries that were committed there were committed by black males. You can call this racial profiling. I call it being intelligent. If the, if the people that normally broke into a place uh, typically wore black clothing, 
Okay, instead of had black skin, you would also see somebody dressed in black is more probable as a suspect. If the people that broke in were typically Hispanic, you would say, well, this is this fits the people that have been seen. Let me explain it to you in a way you can take your mind out of being attached to the racist slant. If we had a person on the run that escaped from federal prison, a convicted murderer, okay, and that person happened to be a white male, and they were putting out an APB, and they were telling the public we're looking for this guy, they would tell you he's a white male. Because if you saw a black male, you'd know that ain't him. Okay? They'd also tell you he has blonde hair, but it could have been dyed. They would tell you his facial hair, he could have shaved. They would describe what the guy looks like. Okay? So if you're in a situation where people that look a certain way whether it's clothing or height or age or how many are in a group, have been conducting a certain activity, you would be like to say, okay, well, I don't know that that means they're guilty, but it ticks that box. Because I'm pre-qualifying in my mind, is this, what, what's, what's wrong with this? I think the kid was out. I don't know if he was up to no good or not. I have no idea. And we'll never know. Because anybody that did know isn't going to tell you at this point. And only the, the only person that really knows is him, and he's dead. And there's no way we can, you know, There's nothing we can do now to find that out. So Zimmerman sees him. He realizes he's being followed. And I believe Martin confronted Zimmerman. I believe that's what happened. I believe that he was like, what are you doing following me? He got aggressive, and he looked at this guy and said, I can take him, and, and threw down with a fight and got shot. That's what I think happened. And if that's what happened, not guilty is the verdict. And that's what it should be. And if it isn't what happened, then there is a miscarriage of justice. My gut on the whole thing is that's what happened. But who is who did the most wrong here? I don't think the police were very wrong. I think the police did their job quite professionally. The prosecutor, I think, had no, no choice but to prosecute, but he never should have brought a charge of secondary murder, and it would have been more likely that he had gotten a conviction. In fact, when I heard that, I immediately told my wife, they're not going to get a conviction here. I, they're just not. That was a dumb-ass move, and it was motivated by the very people who now feel most that justice was not served. Anybody that's making this a black or white issue is wrong, okay? And there's a tremendous portion of black America that assumes this man must be guilty, and with it being swayed that far, it's clearly racial. I saw a picture that was sent to me from a church that it says, attention, on their sign outside of their church, you know, where it's just like, Jesus loves you usually or something, or Jesus is the answer, no Jesus, no peace, that type of thing, like that kind of sign. It said, attention, it is now safe to kill black people in America. And America was spelled with three Ks, K-K-K-A. America, K-K-K-A. Right? This is nonsense. This is nonsense. And it's reprehensible. And everybody connected to altering that tape and putting it out publicly should lose their job minimum, and probably should serve some jail time. Every single person that touched that and thought it was okay to do that, and don't tell me there wasn't malice aforethought. There wasn't an intention to do exactly what they did. And the way the entire media covered this thing is dis dis just disgraceful. What did Zimmerman do wrong if we, in fact, believe his story? He should have withdrawn immediately. He should have withdrawn immediately at the confrontation. He's already on the phone with the police. Now, if he attempts to withdraw and he's pursued, then he's even more justified in using lethal force if necessary. 
But he should not have, if there, and I don't know what happened. I don't know. But it doesn't sound like that's what happened. What it sounds like happened is there was a confrontation initiated by Martin, but Zimmerman didn't seem to make an attempt to withdraw. Now, under Castle Doctrine, stand your ground laws, he doesn't have to. But look at his life today because he chose not to. And a person is dead because he chose not to. If you can withdraw safely, it is always the best course. But it's safety not just for yourself but for others. So if the kid was beating someone else, right, you don't withdraw. But if the kid's just might break in a house or something, you've already called the police, and he's, he's being aggressive with you, you withdraw as best you can. Hey, you're fine, you know. Right, and, and if you're withdrawing, you also have a chance to at some point go, hey, I'm armed, and go into a left hand out, right hand draw mode. I'm armed, and that a lot of times will stop the conflict. But I don't believe Trayvon Martin knew there was a gun until he heard it go off and, and, and felt the bullets go into his body. So I think the way that it was handled was wrong, but not illegal. But again, that's my gut. I don't really know what happened. This is a long answer to a complex question. But it's probably the only no-bullshit example of coverage of this that you've heard up till now. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Ben out in Portland, Oregon. I uh, had a thought about um, the right kind of guns to be having for being prepared. It occurred to me that um, there's kind of the Second Amendment originally applies to the idea of overthrowing a tyrannical government. And if that's the case, then, um, you know, we get a tyrannical government, then, uh, we you know, it's not going to be just citizens uh, or civilians who are going to be overthrowing the government. There would be a massive government involvement, you know, uh, soldiers and police officers would be involved, that kind of thing. So it makes sense to have uh, guns and calibers that are used by the military to support that effort. Um, but as we've seen, those calibers, when there's actually an emergency, just evaporate because everybody is, is uh, well, frankly, hoarding them. And so I was curious what your thoughts were for not that kind of application. What are some good um, uh, alternative calibers that you think would be available for handguns and rifles that would uh, get self-defense and um, uh, hunting done? and have availability in hard times, but not uh, just be wiped out like 9mm and two two three have been. Thank you very much. Love what you do. Bye-bye. Well, the easy answer to the, the question, which is not really what I'm going to spend time on with this call, because there's something gotten totally wrong here. But the easy answer to that question is go to a place that sells ammunition and look what's on the shelves right now. And there's your answer. There's your answer of what remains available during an ammunition shortage. It's, you don't even need, you don't need to theorize or think about it. Just go to the store and look. And whatever you see there, that's what's going to be available. Because it is. There you go. So there's that answer. And it would have been interesting if somebody had actually paid attention to what was available, uh, from the time this thing started all the way to now where it's beginning to wind down just a little bit, but not quite yet. Okay? So that would be, that would be the answer there. Let's start off though with a completely inaccurate assumption. The purpose of the Second Amendment is so that if there's ever a tyrannical government, we can overthrow it. That's the purpose of it. That's a terrible idea to say that, because it's not true. It's not completely untrue, but it's not true. It's not the only justification that the founders had for putting the Second Amendment in place. 
And when we talk like that, we seriously weaken our constitutional position on the right to keep and bear arms because we get mocked by people that say, you know, it's not worth our child's safety so that you can fantasize in your head one day about a fictitious war against our own government. Because on some levels, it does sound ridiculous in today's day and age when you look at the, the, the firepower of, of this country from a military standpoint versus anything a civilian can get their hands on. Um, it, it, it just doesn't make any sense to, to just look at it cut and dry like that. So where does it fit in for that? Well, let's say that the, the, the country comes under attack from within and there's a division of forces The role of the militia then would be what it has always been to support the side of freedom. So you wouldn't be there, you know, necessarily fighting with the soldier, but fighting at the soldier's side. Hopefully, if we ever get into that state of tyranny, that the military itself would recognize it and turn at least part of it. And that would be an example of a civil war. That would be a real civil war. Not like the war between the states, but a real civil war, a war for control of the nation itself. And uh, that would be a very dark day. And that is the last draw. That is the, the, the final resting place. That is, that is the ultimate fear-based reason for the Second Amendment. That is, that is when there's nothing left, there is the armed citizen. And that is one justification for the Second Amendment. It's not the justification for the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment was based on the concept that the individual had a right to protection. That no one should take away that right. And that a militia was far more than just for fighting its own government. It was for defending its country. It was for defending a county. It was for defending one person, if necessary. If there was some sort of injustice and the regular law enforcement or military could not see to it that the citizen would, whether they were a militia of one or a militia of a hundred. It was an acknowledgement that by your birth you have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and should someone attempt to deprive you of your life or liberty unjustly, you had a right to defend yourself with lethal force if necessary. The Second Amendment really gets broken down into three layers of why it exists. One is, yes, so if the country is faced with a tyranny, whether it's from within or without, whether it's an invading army, that brings with it a new government, or our own government, that becomes something like Nazi Germany that a citizen can resist. But that's, that is the far end of the, the radical spectrum. The second is so that in a time of, whether it be invasion or disaster or anything, that the citizenry is armed and can see to itself because it acknowledges the fact that the government, in quotes, can't, handle everything, can't fix everything. A perfect example is what kind of a difference would have there have been if there had been a well-organized civilian militia in place when Hurricane Katrina happened? And, and they would have immediately mobilized after the storm was over and just the very presence alone would have prevented a lot of what went wrong. That isn't vigilantism. Okay? If you're hurting someone and I am armed, I have a right to stop you from hurting them. If you're trying to rape a woman in the Superdome, I have a right to stop you and use whatever's at my disposal to get you to stop. But the third was an understanding, and it's part of why we have the amendment that we never talk about, or that the anti-gunners bring up as showing the Constitution to be irrelevant. 
uh, not having to quarter troops in your home. Well, if I have a right to defend myself and a right not to quarter troops in my home and you try to put them in there, what does that mean? <laughs> Connect the dots for yourself. A belief that the man's house, the family's house, the family's lands were sovereign in of themselves. And you had a right to defend them. And that each person defending what they had was truly the militia, truly the strength of the nation, where an invading army would simply go, yeah, that's not a good idea. Those people are prepared, and those people are willing to defend every square inch of what they have. That's why it's there. The fact that we don't fully utilize it that way is our fault, not the founder's fault. Please don't think the Second Amendment is only about overthrowing a tyrannical government. While it's not about duck hunting and deer hunting the way that some politicians try to make it, it does ensure that those things can be done as well. It's about self-sufficiency of both the individual and the nation as a whole. One cannot be self-reliant and self-sufficient if one does not have the ability to defend oneself, be it them, them, them individually, their community, their town, their state, or their nation. The Second Amendment fills all of these roles. Please don't be short-sighted with it. Hello, Jack. This is Jerry from Michigan. My question is, in connection with an older hen, specifically, I've been keeping chickens now. I have a couple birds that are about uh, three and a half years old and they're no longer laying. Time for them to graduate to something else. And I've always heard the phrase, a stewing hen. I assume that's what I got. So how should I cook these old birds so that I don't end up with something tough on my plate? Thank you. Goodbye. Yeah, um, there's there's a quite a few different ways to look at this. Number one is you're not going to like take this three and a half year old bird and 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 roast it and end up with something that's like a piece of shoe leather. That's that's not going to happen. It might it might be better suited for other applications than simply a a, you know, a broiling or something like that. Um, but it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a problem. Any really slow method that's going to make sure that we don't dry out the bird is going to do better than a quick method to a degree. Part of the reason that we have an attitude toward um, an older bird as something that we, you know, we don't do much with other than stew or make soup out of is because of the numbers in which they are killed. And here's what I mean. So if I run some meat birds, I might run 25 or 50 meat birds for my household once or twice a year. I have quite a busy day on slaughter day. And when I do that, I have, you know, of course I might just take some of the birds and put them whole into the freezer. But I also might say, you know what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take these 10 And in these 10, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to quarter them out. I'm going to have a half a breast each side, a wing, a leg, and I'm going to package them in, in pieces the way that you could go buy them in the store because I have lots of birds. Where I'm not very likely to do that when, you know, Henrietta has reached her full potential as an egg layer, and even though I like having her around, she's one more mouth to feed, and I only have so many chickens I can have in my flock, and it's time to bring up a new rookie to start laying some eggs, Henrietta's got to go. So there's going to be like one Henrietta being killed versus, you know, 25 or 50 broiler chickens. So now I've got one chicken. And it's a little bit bigger of a chicken than I'm typically slaughtering. But it doesn't really make a lot of sense to take the legs off and the thighs off and split the breasts out. It's, it's, it's far more likely that I'm going to cook it whole. Why does that matter? 
a chicken is made up of different parts that actually would be best suited cooked different ways. Okay, So the breast is much easier to dry out than the leg and the thigh. So when we cook a whole chicken, we're, we're sacrificing something there because we should probably cook the breast a bit differently than the leg and the thigh. Got it? So how do we use this chicken? If we just want to use it whole because that makes sense, a stewing will work really, really well. It might be a really great bird to put on something like a side box smoker, though, and do that the way you normally would. Lower temperature, longer term cooking, and all of that extra fat that an older bird has. Cooking slowly into the meat. You're going to end up with a very tender bird because you've cooked it low and slow. Okay, so a little Keith Snow's low and slow barbecue seasoning on there, and some good hickory or, or pecan wood smoked, slow smoked. Uh, and th with the bird like that, I wouldn't overdo the smoke. I might put that bird on the smoker long enough that I know I've infused the flavor, but chicken can become oversmoked if you smoke it too long, so maybe a couple, three hours. And then maybe I wrap that bird up in a tight foil container so it can't let any juices out, and maybe I put that bird in the oven at about 200 degrees, and I do that for maybe another two hours. And that bird's going to fall apart, but it's going to be smoked. It's not just going to be stewed. Okay, stewing, yeah. I mean, cut it, you know, cut the bird up into pieces. Put those pieces with bones into a crock pot. Lettuce, or not lettuce. What? Onions, carrots, celery. The the the, the holy tr or the the Trinity goes in there. What do they call that? The a mirepoix. I was thinking of the Trinity. That's 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 peppers, onions, and and that's the, the Cajun version. But you know, your 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 mirepoix, uh, carrots, celery, and onion. And parsley and cook that in a, uh, in a, a slow cooker with very little water. You don't really need any water if you don't want to make a soup until it's, you know, ready to, like when you reach in and you pull the leg and the bone slides out, it's done. And it's going to be very good that way. So that's going to be kind of like a slow roasting in a slow cooker. Making soup, cut it up, make chicken soup. I, I'm not going to tell you how to make chicken soup. There's a million recipes, but make sure you do it with the bones. Don't, don't debone the thing. But let me bounce an idea off you. Let's say you wanted to break this up into multiple meals. As long as you're not trying to feed 20 people, let's say you have a spouse and it's going to be just you and her eating, well, take your legs and thighs off as quarters. Okay, Those can be cooked on the grill like you cook any chicken. They'll come out just fine, I promise you. Right? Lower temperature, cook them a little bit longer, get the skin nice and crisp, but cook them however you like them. And each of you have a leg quarter for a meal. Then your wings, it's only two wings. So if you do other chickens, maybe you go ahead and you, you know, cut the wing tips off and take out your, you know, your four little pieces of wings and throw them in a bag and wait till later. And you can cook those however you want. They're going to be fine. Okay. But they're really kind of small. So what you might do, okay, is leave them as whole three section wings and cook them with your legs and your thighs and just take them off a little bit earlier because there's less meat they'll cook. And that will cook just fine. All right. The tougher stuff is going to be the breast. That bird's been running around on those thighs and all, but that's that juicier, darker meat. It lends itself to slow cooking. That breast has been, them wings have flexed many times. It's been clenched up when she's laid eggs. That breast is going to be the part that's going to be definitely tougher and a little harder to cook so that it comes out tender. But if you bone that breast, okay, save your bones and use them to make stock, but you debone the breast and you slice that thin, Very, very thin, about as thin as you can with a knife and still have meat there. And then you stir fry that. I promise you it'll be some of the best flavored chicken you've ever eaten in your life. 
And it won't be tough because it's been cut thin and quickly stir-fried. It won't be tough at all. It can't be. There's not enough there to be tough if you do it that way. So you can get creative with these things. But one of the best ways you could do it is if you have a good solar oven and get your roasting pan and put that chicken in that roasting pan, but put something in the bottom so that it doesn't lay in its juices too much and solar cook that sucker till it falls apart, that'll be the tenderest, juiciest piece of chicken you've ever eaten in your life. So don't feel constrained with an older hen. Just understand, if you're just going to throw it on the grill and cook it as, you know, like a typical fast chicken, or you're going to throw it in the oven at 425 and cook it, you're going to end up with a tougher bird. All you really need to do is slow down the cooking, low and slow, and you'll get a tender result. Three-and-a-half-year-old bird is not that old. I've talked to people that have had birds that they're putting down at seven years. That's a tough old bird. Three-and-a-half, you know, I, I think people miss it, but when you go out and you shoot pheasants and grouse and stuff like that in the wild, many times those birds are two or three years old. Wood ducks, things like that, you know, mallards, those birds might be three, four years old. And when you shoot doves, you can look and see the tail and the wing structure. You can go, this bird's a year old. This bird was born this year. This bird looks like it's made it through a couple seasons. And there's a difference. But if you cook correctly, it's not that big of a deal. It's not like you're eating, you know, the, the back leg of a, of a 20 year old horse. It's just a chicken. So don't build constrained, but if you want to make super stew, go for it. And one thing about those birds, that are older like that, they do have a lot more fat and a lot more flavor. And I think the biggest reason that our ancestors used them for soups and stocks and stews isn't because they had to. It's because they got better results with them. And over time, it became older, old, and tough, so we stew it. I think the truth is, when you make a soup with a three- or four-year-old bird, you get a much richer, deeper flavor in that soup. And I think that's the real reason. So they may be best for that, but it doesn't mean that's what you have to do. Um, I do think it would be a good idea for you to watch a video that Paul Wheaton put out on um, on, on uh, chicken slaughter. I think it was called like the uh, careful or ethical chicken slaughter, I think it is. I'll find it for you. I'll put a link to both of the videos, the two parts of it in, because there is a lot of fat in there. And you don't want to lose it. And the lady that does it is using, is doing exactly what you're saying, an old laying hen. And she shows you how to get everything out of the bird. So I take a look at that. Those are my thoughts on cooking older chickens. Let's take another call. Hello, Jack. This is Jesse from Denver. I have a question for Paul Wheaton regarding the raising of chickens. I live on a normal city plot in Denver. And in Denver, it's permissible to have up to eight chickens. Um, I'd love to have more land to be able to move the chickens around and let them have more space. But I've got the land that I've got. And I want to get some chickens. My concern is my two dogs. Now, one dog is a lazy old hound dog. I'm not worried about him, but my other dog is a, a terrier. She's kind of a, a kind of a killing machine. She's killed about probably a dozen mice, uh, a couple squirrels, and at least one cat that made the mistake of coming onto my property. And I'm worried if I get some chickens that she'll spend all of her tra time trying to murder them. Uh, now, I have a, a background in framing and carpentry, so I can build a strong enough chicken coop to keep her out. Um, I just think that if she's, if there, if the chickens are there, she'll spend all of her time sniffing around, barking, yapping, and trying to get them. And I'm worried that this might stress out the chickens too much, or possibly, you know, give her an ulcer or something. Now my land is situated uh, in such a way that I can't physically keep them apart. Like they have to share the same yard. Um, <clears throat> and so I'm just wondering if there's anything I can do 
any training I can provide the dog or anything I can do with the chickens or, you know, will they possibly just get used to each other? I know humans and chickens and dogs have coexisted for thousands of years. So I think I was wondering if, if Mr. Wheaton could provide any insights. That would be helpful. Thanks very much. Somehow this is turning into a chicken-themed show. Uh, and with all due respect to Mr. Wheaton, I'm going to take this one myself. Because I think what Paul would probably tell you is get a new dog. And I, I, I don't think that's really a good idea. And this is not like you have a livestock guardian dog th situation in a big ranch or something where that would actually not get a new dog, but get a dog for that job and put him over there and the chickens over there and keep your other dog away. That would be the simple answer. You don't have that. A dog's a family member. Um, this does show the importance of species selection. And if you were going to get a dog to coexist with livestock, I wouldn't recommend most of the terrier breeds. Um, and what compounds the problem is the dog is fully matured and the chickens will be brand new to the dog. So it's not like bringing a pup in like we brought Charlie in, who, by the way, has pit bull in him, um, and Labrador, I'm pretty sure of, uh, Akita. And none of these would be breeds of dog that you would particularly think would be okay to be around chickens unsupervised. But we've worked with them as a puppy and it's worked out pretty well. In fact, it's worked so well, let me tell you, before I give you an answer, what happened last night. Dorothy comes running in. He killed a chicken. Ah, oh, shit. You know, damn it. I thought we had him. I thought we had him trained. I didn't think he'd hurt him. And I go out there, and I know right away it ain't Max, you know, because they, they climb on his back. He doesn't care. Um, but Charlie jumps him and chases him once in a while, stuff like that. So I go out, and I see the bird just sitting there. But I can tell she's got her head up, and I'm thinking, oh, crap. She's probably hurt. I get over, and I look at her. And what she had done is she just went into, like, victim mode where she just like well they just shut down and they hope to god that they get a chance to escape and he had already left because she had Dorothy had yelled him but the chicken was just sitting there i walk over and look at the chicken. chicken's fine it's not missing a feather hadn't been hurt at all he was holding it down because he thought it was a game but he didn't hurt it so what i'm saying is even when the breed's not right you can teach them it's just harder as an older animal One thing, though, we did with him right from the beginning is we put him in with the chickens under very close supervision. Now, the birds were already half-grown. They were able to move a bit, and whenever he went for them, we jerked him back. But I'll tell you why we did this. Had we not, he would have become, like you're talking about, obsessed with getting to them. Because it was just like you're in with them, you're out, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out, you're under supervision, you're told not to, He got to the point where he kind of understands, like, these these are part of our, our, our pack. They look kind of funny for dogs, but they're part of the pack. They, they have, you know, so when he jumped on that bird yesterday, he had no intention of harming it. He was doing what he would do with another puppy. Just he's, you know, he's freaking 40 pounds now, and the bird weighs like four. Uh, maybe three and a half was a pretty little hen, and uh, that's not a very fair wrestling match. But he really didn't hurt her, so it can be done. Your situation is different. You've got an adult dog and you've got a breed that really likes to tear shit up. I mean, if you look at what, what happens to a mouse when a terrier gets a hold of it, uh, or any animal that just shaking, twisting, flailing, you know, that they do, um, it's what they're bred for. So now you're trying to go against the animal's instincts. What I would say, though, is if you can cross-fence your yard, you would do a lot to create a buffer zone. So if you had your chickens, if you imagine your chicken house and maybe a run for them to move around in, And then come off, maybe if you have enough space, about 10 feet and do a fence. So that there's 10 feet between the birds and the dog. And at different times of day, maybe you open that fence. 
That's probably the best thing you can do if you have to keep them in isolation. It's probably got the best chance of help, and if the dog breaches the first fence, it's still to a point where he can't get to them, and there's time to rectify the situation, okay? Or her, get to her, because I think you said she's a she. Um, so that's, that's one thing you can do. To try to acclimate the dog to the birds, and this probably won't work, but this would be what would give you the best shot at it. I imagine the dog lives in the house, okay? To a dog, when something is allowed in the house and cared for, it takes more of an impression on the dog. The dog is part of the social unit, the group, the pack. So if you brood your chicks in the house, in a safe place the dog can't get to them, but in the house, that will already start to send that message. If you show the dog the birds, if you let her sniff them under very close supervision, if you talk to her, if you tell her that the bird is good, if you use words that she understands that mean positive things and soothing things, you may get her to understand and accept these animals as part of the social unit. And the more exposure she gets, again, under very careful supervision, the better, and accept the fact that no matter what you do, one of them might get the chomp. And if one of them gets the chomp, then you know it's not going to work. That's the best I can do for you. A buffer zone and trying to instill the social dynamic in the dog that these, these animals are part of our family unit. Um, you would be more likely to pull it off with a cat than a bird. Okay, A cat can defend itself. A cat is furry. A cat sort of looks like a dog to a dog once the dog accepts it and all. A bird, the way that, a chicken, the way it moves, that head, you know, and the feathers and the wings and they jerk around. It's going to be like dangling a great big worm in front of a bass and expecting him not to eat it. It can be done, but it's not the most probable. So be careful with it. You can give that a shot. If all else fails, you know, you're looking at a buffer zone. But I would, you know, right now, would I go out and buy a terrier pup, even a pup, and try to condition it to be okay with my animals? Probably not. But most people would tell you a pit bull Akita lab mix is not a good dog to be around animals either. But by getting a pup, by working with him, and by teaching him right from the beginning, we're now able to bring new animals in that he didn't come up with, and he understands those animals belong here. So it can be done, but you got a tough breed to work with in an adult dog that makes the situation harder. Best I can do for you, let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Adam from Orem, Utah. I was calling to get your opinion on aquaponics gardening. I was just curious if you had any feelings, whether it was good or bad, if it's something that's worth putting the time and money into it, or if there are aspects to it that could just be easily adapted to everyday gardening in our backyards. That would help out there. Here's the reality. I, I, I'm not sure. Uh, I've seen both sides of this debate. Mr. Wheaton, Mr. Paul would say, don't mess with aquaponics. Do aquaculture. Build a giant pond and just put fish in it and let life be merry and grow some chestnuts, water chestnuts or something in there. Um, and I see wisdom to that, but not everybody lives where they have enough land. Or even if you do, some people have this stuff called rock underneath. It makes pond construction all but impossible. So it's not always an option. And if you want to bring some protein in, aquaponics is one way to do it. Um, I've heard people say that's the easiest thing in the world. Once the system's balanced, it just takes care of itself. And I've heard people that have, you know, believed that, put systems in and said, bullshit. You will always be jacking around with it. You will always be going out of your way to hold the balance together. And it will always sooner or later fail and kill everything. And you'll have to start over and recycle. 
And I do find that the more, uh, the more a person believes the second thing, that it's always a problem, the smaller the system they put in was. The, generally, the larger the system, the easier it is to maintain the balance because the system will swing less if it's a larger ecosystem. A larger ecosystem is more stable than a small one. So a lot of the people that do barrel ponics and stuff like that, and they have like a couple hundred gallon system, it's a way to learn, it's a way to get started, it's a way to figure things out. But they're the ones that generally say, I came in one day and all my fish were dead. Um, so there's that. I'm actually going to put one in. I have a video that I'll, I'll give you guys a link to today that uh, shows my plan for one that will be outdoors. No screen house, no, no greenhouse, no nothing. Using two 470-gallon, six-foot round stock tanks uh, and a, a row of grow beds and a reed bed and uh, a dump barrel. Uh, that with recharged with, uh, as necessary and needed to be topped off with rainwater from a roof collection to a 1500 gallon cistern, which serves both the purpose of topping that off and as a reserve water supply for the property. So I'm doing it. Why am I doing it though? One, because the guy that came to my first workshop had a way to truly simplify the siphoning mechanism and to basically have one dump barrel that dumps all its water into all your grow beds with a siphon with no moving parts that can be adjusted by changing the length of a piece of pipe you don't even glue to it. I saw that and went, that will make what part of what I already wanted to do easy. I was just going to have the two tanks and just run a recirculation pump and pump water from one to the other. And as it overflowed, we go back down to the first one. Just keep the water moving. I wasn't going to do aquaponics at all. It was going to be a little garden pond set up with two ponds just for the microclimate effect and to bring in you know beneficial insects and throw some goldfish in it. When I saw that, I'm like, you know, we're just tying this other piece to it. I was going to do all this other stuff anyway, so I'll do it. And if it doesn't work, I'll disassemble it and use it for other things. Why am I doing it, though? One, to find out. To stop listening to whatever, like what Steve was saying. With the, instead of worrying about whether it's good or bad, just do it and figure out if it works for you. So that's one to figure it out. Number two, my real goal is to be able to grow things like cilantro and lettuce and spinach later in the year than I can now when the heat comes in by keeping the roots cool and growing them in dappled shade. And to see what, just to see what the whole thing's about. If you want a lot of the good of aquaponics though, you can do it with far simpler technologies. If you look at, uh, Larry, I can't think of his last name. There's a guy named Larry though, Gray might be, um, has um, a, like a, basically like a grow buckets solution where you take the bucket, you put an aquaponic style um, uh, basket pot in the bottom of the bucket, you fill it with soil, and the bucket sits in a rain gutter. Rain gutter grow system is what he calls it. And then that wicks water up out of the rain gutter, and the rain gutter is recharged with water from a holding tank with a float valve. That's a lot easier than aquaponics, and the whole I don't have to irrigate thing, and uh, keeping the roots cool and all that happens all by itself with that. And you can certainly take in some fertility into the water as well to, to make, to simplify fertility issues as well. So there's other ways to do it. But the answer is, I don't really know and I won't until I just stop worrying about what everybody says on both sides of the debate and try it. Um, I do think though that, you know, my system then will be consisting of about a thousand gallons by the time it's all said and done with. And I think it's much easier to maintain the balance of a 1,000-gallon system than a 200-gallon system. 
And uh, so we'll see how that works out. And if nothing else, you know, like I said, we're going to have this reed bed. This is the last filter that comes down before it overflows. I can take everything from the backside of the reed bed off and still be recirculating through the reed bed uh, as a bio biological filtration. Uh, I probably won't even put tilapia in this, at least not initially, or any type of an edible fish. I'll probably initiate the system with goldfish. Because uh, we're going to be going into winter. This is probably going to be a workshop I'm going to run, by the way, guys, in September. I need to talk to the guy that builds the systems like this. I want him to come up and actually be the instructor for it. And I think we'll do like a two-fold workshop. We might do an edible forest garden design course on one day that I'll teach. And we might do the aquaponics course on the second day and do like a two-and-a-half-day course like we did. Uh, a lot less physical effort than we put into the uh, the, the, uh, the contour beds. Uh, but it'll be a fun time. I think anybody that came to the last event would tell you, if you want to go to a permaculture event, <laughs> you want to come to Jack Spierko's permaculture event. We don't feed you to bully and have you meditate and contemplate your navel. We feed you brisket and sausage, play pool, and drink beer at a permaculture event at the Survival Podcast. Uh, a fun time, I think, was had by all. And if you didn't leave here with a full belly, it was by your choice. Anyway, uh, that's my thoughts on aquaponics up to this point, and I will include that link in today's show notes for you. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Chris, a.k.a. Spud Gunner in Northwest Indiana. I was wanting to get your thoughts on my situation in buying a new house. I recently got a new job because I was unhappy at my old one. Unfortunately, I am currently in a 65-minute commute passing by Chicago since my job is in Illinois. And on Friday afternoons, it may take 90 minutes. I'm happy I took the new job, but I'm looking to relocate. I'm 29, married with two kids, age 3 and 5. I have 30,000 equity in my house and 10 to 15 grand in savings. My last debt is paid off in two more months. I'm currently in suburbia on 0.2 acres and recently started gardening in the last couple of years, and I'm looking to get a house with some land. I'm having trouble deciding on the right mix of commute, how much I can afford, and amount of land. It's a given I'm going to stay in Indiana. That means at least a 30-minute commute. The longer I go on my commute, the cheaper houses become and the more land is available. Two comparable houses may be $30,000 difference between the two based on commute. Or I can buy more land. If I get a nice house on at least five acres, it may be my forever house. It would be way more than I want to spend, but how, payments on it would still be easily affordable, just a couple hundred dollars more than I'm paying now. But that nice house on lots of land comes at a higher price both in dollars and commute. It would still be shorter than I am now, though, and many miles less. I can definitely afford the decent house on lots of land, even if it's considerably more. I'm just looking for some thoughts on balancing the amount of land with price and commute. Thank you. Well, it's a very personal question, and I can only tell you cut and dry what I would do. I would trade a commute for land any day, any day. Um, and I would move further out to pay less any day. And if I have to drive 90 minutes on a, on a Friday, I have to drive 90 minutes on a Friday. And I'm going to talk about some lifestyle design things you can do to mitigate this in a minute. I, I just want to address that part first. You know, would I do it? Yes. Does that mean you should do it? No. It means you should do what works best for you. You used a word there that I would have asked you about had you not brought it up yourself. Forever home. Is this your forever home? If you're going to do this, you need to look long and hard and feel that way about this property. For that type of a commute and that type of financial investment, at this point in your life where you've done so much to get yourself out of debt, and I'm very proud of you for that. I'm very proud of everybody in this audience that's done it and proven it can be done, by the way. Um, It's not time to take a huge step backwards. And the only way you're going to convince yourself and me that this amount of money needs to be spent is if it's a long-term investment. And if you're going to buy that much property and start doing things to it, 
odds are it will become your forever home. Because the more you do to a place, the more attached you become to it. You can put a kitchen in or a bar top in or in your kitchen or do the flooring and even do the work yourself. Be very proud of it. You'll be attached to it for like a month. And then you'll just be like, this is the place I live, and it's cool, and I'm glad I did that myself. But, you know, I could do that again. In fact, doing it again would be fun and easier because now I know how. When you put roots down, real roots, tree roots, plant roots, animal roots, and you start to actually live from the land, even when it's a you know a third of an acre in the suburbs like I did in Arlington, I, I got to tell you, when I left that place, part of me was like, I know I want more, but man, there was some things about that place that really I started to see it as the place that nourished me. And it's why our grandparents didn't move every 10 years or every five years and always move up. And they didn't call things a starter house. They called it a home. Their first home was usually their last home. So that might naturally happen, but that's what I would be looking for. I'd be very careful in my selection, therefore. The other thing I'd say is don't get married to five acres. If you find a nice place that does everything you want, ticks all your boxes, and it's three acres, and there's a place just like it down the road, and it's so, and there's a much better price difference for the three acres. Three acres will wear your ass out. That's what I have. Do I want more? Yeah. I got my eyes on some land to my to my north and to my my west that I'd like to buy from existing property holders that I really don't think have a lot of promise to sell. Um, so if I can get a good deal on them, would I love to expand out to nine acres? Yeah. Would I love 20 acres? Yeah. But will I acknowledge that right now putting this three acres in a full-on designed ecosystem is, is years and years and years of work and can produce more for me than I could ever use on my own? Absolutely. Hell, uh, a well-designed, well-laid-out, well-managed acre uh, is a lot of work to, to get into that state. So... Don't be married to the five acres, but yes, more land, you know, in the neighborhood of two to five acres. Yeah, look, look for it. And if you can make it work, make it work. Now let's talk about some lifestyle design things. I don't know what you do for a living. I would ask you if it was a live show, but if there's any way you could telecommute even one day a week, it will change your life for the better. And it will probably make your employer very happy. Now, if you are, you know, a guy that's like doing physically doing something at the office. Right, where you're actually putting things together, like bolting things together or whatever, it may not be practical. But most jobs that people have today, especially well-paying jobs that people have today, don't require their presence for the job to get done. And you could approach your, your supervisor or your supervisor's supervisor with the concept of, can we test this for one month, four weeks, one day a week for four weeks, and see how it works out? And, it, and, and that often will get you down the road toward that. You might want to get a book called The Four-Hour Workweek. Uh, you may never take it to the full level that Tim Ferriss recommends with having your own assistant in India to do your work for you. But it will give you a lot of ideas on the approach of working from home a day or two a week. Many people that begin to do that end up going from working one day a week at home to working four days a week at home and one day in the office because their employers are blown away with how much more productive and happy they are and how much more likely they are to stay. Now, you're new to this job. It might not be a good idea to do it right away, but you know, six months, a year into the job, you should have the confidence of them. So that's one lifestyle design technique you can use to mitigate the situation. I'm trying to make this apply to everyone, not just people that want to buy a house far away, because all of us can do that. If you don't try that at some point in your career, you're wasting hours of your life. If you spend an hour in commute every day, both directions, two hours, and you get to work from home one day a week, 
tasks two hours a week, it's eight hours a month. Okay? It's 72 hours of your life back every year. Not in a car. It's worth asking the question. I'm just saying, all right? And some of you, you can't. If Again, if you bolt things together or pick oranges or whatever, you have to be there. I understand that. If, you, you know, if you're a waitress, if you work behind a cash register, if you stock shelves. But if your job primarily involves your butt in a seat and sitting in front of a computer, there is no need for you to be there other than they don't trust you to work on your own. And if you can't get them to trust you to work on your own, maybe it's time to do what this guy did and look for another job. Now, let's try another little piece of lifestyle design that might enhance your life. Uh, it might involve spending a little bit of money, but, you know, money doesn't buy happiness unless it's properly spent. There's a jack quote for you. Money doesn't buy happiness unless it's properly spent. That's much better than money doesn't buy happiness because that is bullshit because I have bought some things in my life that have made me very, very happy indeed. All right, so... How could we do this, spend a little bit of money, and enhance our overall quality of life? I don't know how old your kids are, and this may not be practical yet because they might not be old enough to be on their own for a little while, or it might involve a big investment to extend their child care stuff, if, assuming both parents work. But what if you did this? What if instead of commuting home for 90 minutes on Friday, you commuted somewhere nor more close to the neighborhood of an hour, And your wife commuted somewhere in the area of like 30 minutes and you found some really cool places and some really cool restaurants. And if Friday became date night and early date night, right? So as long as you're not like, you know, wrestling cows for a living or something, so you don't stink to high heaven with, you know, when you show up, assuming your job is somewhat of an executive or a white collar type of job where you show up nice and clean and you can be presentable and things like that. And same with her. And you guys met somewhere, not in the middle, but Far enough that it reduces your misery a little bit. And before you came home, after all of that commute, you sat down and had a nice meal with your wife and talked about your week and made her feel like this was her time. That might make the whole thing better, and it might make the commute that's usually miserable a little bit more enjoyable with something to look forward and break it somewhere along the way. I'm telling you, even if it was if it was 15 minutes away from wherever you're living, it would probably make a big difference. So that's another lifestyle adjustment you can make. The next thing you need to understand is it's very easy to change your place of employment and far more complicated to change your place of residence. So if you find a house that you fall over your head, over your heels in love with, and it's the place you want to live forever, and you begin transforming into what you want it to be, a self-sufficient paradise... You have the rest of your life to find a place to apply your talents for income that's closer. Maybe you'll actually find an employer in Indiana at some point. So that's, I know you just took a new job. It's not really cool to think that way right away, but you better because your employer thinks that way. Your employer is not out there to take care of you. They're after taking care of the bottom line. They may see taking, there's great benevolent employers. I used to be one who take really good care of their employees. I used to be one when I had employees, but I did it because, you know, one, I'm a decent person, but two, I know it's best for the company. I know it's best for the company that my employees are looked after and taken care of and feel valued. Because my I'm not in business to employ people. I'm in business to make a profit. That's why you go into business. I'm in business to produce something of value and exchange it for value. People are how you get that done in certain businesses. So if your employer realizes that they're better served by someone else having your job, they will do it 
So you need to do the same thing. Everybody needs to have a self-employed mentality, even if you have a job. Whatever's better for you and your family, go there. Do that. Just be sure of it. One concern I have, one concern only. It is very possible that if you buy this house that's a 90-minute commute, maybe not on Fridays, but every day, and longer on Fridays, eventually you'll begin to resent the commute. And if it's as expensive as you say, you'll resent the job, even if it's a good job, because you'll feel like you have to work to pay for the house. Be really smart in the way you buy this house. There are some great deals out there right now, and it's quite possible that you can find everything you're looking for for less than you currently expect. And remember this. You can change windows, you can change walls, you can change floors, you can change cabinets, you can put new roofs on, you can learn to be a handyman, you can fix up a house. You can make a house bigger, you can make a house smaller. But there is no device that will stretch the size of the land. So I would be far more willing to compromise on the structure than the property. And that may lead you into some real opportunities. And don't be afraid to get land that's not been taken well care of and looks bad. You can mow land. You can cut trees. You can push dirt around with a bulldozer. Okay? As long as it's not a giant hole or it hasn't been soaked in toxic gick, you can change it. So look for the right price, the right piece of land, the right orientation, the right soil, and a good quality house that you can live in right away. It doesn't have to be a house you're in love with. Just live in ready. As long as it's that, everything else can be done over time. Those are my thoughts on that. It's a complex personal question, but I think it's one that many of us are finding ourselves at least dealing with part of in our lives with a quest for more liberty and independence. Because generally speaking, the closer you get to a place like Chicago, the less liberty, freedom, and independence you have. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Zach in North Carolina. My question for you is this, uh, from a survival standpoint, how are we both generous and uh, have redundancies in our life at the same time? What I mean by this is this, uh, I'm of the Christian faith, I want to be generous and be able to help my neighbors out in times of need for them, but how do I um, have those built-in redundancies in my life while at the same time knowing how much resources I can allocate to others for their hard times, uh, specifically with like canned goods and whatnot. How do how do I know when I've got enough for, to cover my family's needs uh, while also having enough to give to others? Uh, with vehicles, it would be additional benefit to have an additional vehicle at our own house, or it would be better to give away an extra vehicle now that we have more vehicles than adults that are driving. As far as other resources, how do I know what to hold on to and what to give away or even uh, throw away in some instances? Your help is greatly appreciated. Thank you for your show, and thank you very much for the information that comes out of it. Thank you. Bye. Well, I mean, you, you're kind of hitting on the whole concept, you know, of the coat hanging in your closet belongs to your, your naked brother or, or whatever it says. And, and I understand that to a degree. But let me explain what I've been trying to explain to people from the very beginning of why preparedness is a virtue and a generous one at that. 
If you cannot look after yourself, you cannot look after your family. If you cannot look after your neighbors, you cannot look after your city. If you cannot look after your city, you cannot look after your state. And if you cannot look after your state, you cannot look after your nation. And the reality is most of us will do best to look after our nation by looking after ourselves and our, and our neighbors. That our own backyard is the place we can make the biggest difference. And when we get distracted by our circle of concern, everything we care about, we lose track of our circle of influence, everything that we can actually do something about. So that's, that's the first, just let's put it in perspective before we d decide that we're some kind of evil being for having too many canned goods or too many sacks of rice when somebody else is hungry. Now, focusing on our own backyards and our own cities and our own towns and our own communities that we can actually do something about. I think you will find that most people in this country are not starving to death, and if they wanted more than they have, they could get it if they would work for it. There are people that are really down in a hard way through no fault of their own, or they've made mistakes, and now the consequences are insurmountable, at least for a time. Should we help them? Yes. Do I help when I can? Yes. Will I continue to help? Yes. Should you do so as well? Yes. But having less cans of Wolf Brand Chili in your, your cabinet is not going to make that happen. And you can probably do more by walking over to an old lady's house that has paint peeling off of it and saying, Ma'am, would you like it if I and some other neighbors painted your house than donating any amount of food or any amount of money could ever do toward actually being generous and doing something that matters? Because that would make the whole neighborhood look better. It would get neighbors together. It doesn't cost that much money. It's a few gallons of paint. Everybody ships in for a couple gallons. Everybody gets out together on a Saturday and paints that old lady's house. And that's more important than giving food to a food bank. Because a lot of the people getting food from those food banks could get off their ass and go out and get a job and buy food. And a lot of people getting money for food from a food bank are also already getting your money taken out of your paycheck through welfare programs. I'm not saying everybody, but some. And those people are a bigger problem than the person who's put redundancy in their life. So that's, that's the macro view. Now let's get down to why it actually works better. All of that food that you have stored up in your house isn't just for you unless the situation mandates it. This is what I mean. If you get a situation where your neighborhood is cut off because of a weather event, let's say, for a week or two, and you know that's what it's, it's something that it's very temporary. You, you know that it's not the economic collapse and the zombies are rising and, you know, we don't know when order will be restored. It's a freaking ice storm. And because of the ice storm, trees fell and you can't get out past a bridge or whatever it is and you're stuck and none of the stores are open and people in your neighborhood need something, share with them. That's why you have it. That's why it's there. So you can help them. Now, does that mean you open your doors and go, everybody take what you want? No, you look, you identify the needs that you can best address, and you address them without compromising the safety and security of your own family. You were wise enough to prepare. They were not. That doesn't mean you leave them freezing in the cold like the grasshopper that dies in the grasshopper and ant story, but it does mean you let them feel it a little bit. Because then maybe they'll do something while they have the opportunity. Now, let's say everything completely falls apart and you don't know when order will be restored. Then you have to be very careful with what you share as far as knowledge that you have it in the first place and what you give away. But in the end, you're going to have to pull that community together and you want to be someone they value so you'll all look after each other because you're going to have to get by together because that's your team whether you want it or not. As far as how do you know when you have enough, space and time limitations will tell you. 
you're not going to have more than you can use. Unless you have a mansion and you filled up bedrooms to the roof with it, odds are most of us have a spatial limitation alone that will eventually say there's just not a lot of room to put a lot more stuff in here. And that is when you turn on the generosity. Because if we're storing what we're eating and eating what we're storing and it's not 100% 25-year mountain house cans, which it shouldn't be, you start to look at it and go, you know what? There's a bunch of pasta. I don't eat a lot of pasta, but it's there. It's there because it's cheap, and it stores for dang near ever. But I'm thinking about five years is the lifespan of pasta. This pasta was acquired in 2006. There's the 2007. There's the 2008. There's the 2009. And 2010, let's pretend we're back in time a few years, uh, 2010 pasta, which means the 2005 pasta is about reached its limit. There's not a ton of it there, but it's all still good. It's only one-fifth of my supply. I'm going to replace that supply this year, and I'm going to take all of that down to the local food bank, assuming they won't throw it away because they read labels. And if they do, I will find a place I can give it away who won't read the label and will accept the fact it's freaking pasta, and it probably would be good for another four or five years. But I'm just going to make sure I have a constant rotation of a small portion of my supplies at five to seven years. So I'm only ever rotating about 20% of it. I'm going to use some of it, and I'm going to give some of it away. But you will then be giving away more than most people ever even think about how did you get there by preparing your family and your community first. This is how you balance it. Don't let religious guilt get in the way of taking care of your family. I believe, I can't prove it, but I believe that if God could talk to you, he would command you first to find how you can be happy in your life. And some people take that as heresy, and they'd say, you're speaking for God, and those people I can't help. I'm, I'm surmising here. But the people that bother me are the ones that say, you know what, that would be terrible, because people would be raping and killing and stealing, and no, they wouldn't. No, they wouldn't. Because if you're doing that, you're probably not happy. Find a way to be happy. Let go of religious guilt. If you have a faith that you practice, fine. There is nowhere that I've ever read in the Bible, and I've been through it several times, that it says, I command thee to be guilty, to feel guilty. Commanded to be generous, look after your brother, etc. But nowhere are you commanded to carry the emotion of guilt, except when you've done something wrong. Preparing your family for the future is not wrong. Again, it should be a virtue in our country. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. It's Melissa from Illinois with yet another question on gardening. We do the chop and drop that, um, that you recommend and the others recommend uh, for weeds. I am wondering if the same applies to thistles uh, or if we want, because we have a lot of thistles in our, on our land. And I know the deep tap root means they probably bring up a ton of nutrients to the plants. But I didn't know if we should chop and drop those or if we should take them somewhere and burn them. Thanks for your help. Bye. The answer is absolutely yes. You should chop and drop thistle with a caveat. You must do it before it goes to flower and seed or you will spread thistle like the dickens. So yes, chop it, drop it, cut it, 
to the ground. Chop it up, get your gloves out, and chop it up into multiple pieces so it'll break down faster. It's not going to root itself like, you know, like a comfrey root that can come into agosol and, and regenerate. And, and it probably will when you cut it, it'll grow back. So cut it again. And then cut it again, and then cut it again, and keep doing it, and eventually you'll disadvantage it to a point where other things that you do want will take over. And you'll do that. You're right. It's an thistle is a incredible, incredible dynamic accumulator. It's also the root plant family that every lettuce in the in the world comes from. That 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 you know, like nutritionally devoid ice land, uh, you know, ice. Ice ball lettuce, you know, the iceberg lettuce is what I'm trying to say. The, the you know, the head lettuce, uh, you get at the store. It's almost flavorless unless you put something on it. That stuff, the big, beautiful, leafy romaine, all of that stuff comes from prickly lettuce and thistle. It's where it all comes from. So it's actually quite edible. And it, when eaten young and tender, it's, it's quite good. In fact, you'll find that most plants that have thorns are really good. That's why they have thorns. To, if they tasted like crap or they were poisonous, they wouldn't eat thorns. Because you wouldn't mess with them. Think about stinging nettle, a great, great vegetable. It has stinging capabilities because otherwise it would get eaten. Everything would give it the chomp, right? So you have to handle it a certain way. So understand that there's a, a lot of food value there, especially if you have any grazers. They will, like I said, my geese love prickly lettuce. They they run to it. It's the first thing they eat when they get into a new new parcel of land is prickly lettuce. Uh, and thistle as well. I just don't have very much of it. Chop and drop it. Just do it before it goes to seed. Let's say you go out and you look at your thistle and go, crap! Look at that big old bulbous flower on there and it's already starting to turn. I know it's already got some, it's been pollinated and those seeds are, cut the top off, cut, you know, wear gloves, cut the flower heads off, throw them away, cut the rest of the plant to the ground. Let's take another call. Hey Jack, this is David up in Minneapolis. I've been hearing you talk lately about uh, distillation and, and kind of homemade liquor making. Um, there's a wonderful book called The Alaskan Bootlegger's Bible, written by Leon W. Kania. That's K-A-N-I-A. He goes everything from making wine in prison to making whiskey on the frontier and everything in between. Uh, it's a great book, a fun read. Any home brewer probably wants to have it already if they haven't heard of it. And frankly, it's a great resource for a, a prep because he teaches you how to make alcohol out of anything you have at hand. Highly recommend it. Fun read, well-written, kind of uh, whimsical, a lot of fun. And uh, I think a lot of the listeners really enjoy owning it. Thanks for what you do. Keep up the good work. Bye now. Well, I, I went out and I did a search, um, which was the following search. This is a little tip you can use to find interesting things. The Alaskan Bootleggers Bible, okay, four words with a space between them, then a space, and then the word file type as a single word, no space, file type, colon, PDF. And that will find PDFs only. It will search for PDF files. There is a PDF book, duh, you know, it's PDF, B-O-O-K-D dot com is the site. I would not use it. I went there and McAfee went crazy saying it was a dangerous IP, which is, can be true and cannot be true. But even though it shows as a PDF, the reality is it's not. You have to download some kind of 
freaking exe, which is an ex ex execute executable file from them, to be able to read the books that they have in supposed PDF on their site. If it was a PDF, you wouldn't need that. PDF means portable document format. That's the entire point, that you don't need special software, just Adobe Reader, and you can read any document if it's been PDF'd. Um, so I don't trust anything that makes me download an executable file. But the next list thing on the list in, um, in the Google results, there were only three. The next one was aussiedistiller.com.au. And then they had the PDF, and it's straight to the P It's actually the PDF file. So you can read this book for free. It's clearly like a Xeroxed, copied, scanned PDF. And that means somebody's copyright has been violated. The reason I'm okay with it here is I think that this is going to let you actually determine whether this book's right for you or not. And I think that by having this PDF out there, I think in this case, this author will probably sell more, not less books. Um, I also I get a cursory look at it. I think this will be a book that some people will want and some people won't. So I'm going to provide a, a link, not to the crazy infiltrated download this crap to your computer thing, but just to the straight PDF that you can right-click on in the show notes and say download and save as a file and, and, save it and open it with Adobe Reader. It's a cool, clean file. You, you can check it out. And I would just say this. Since I'm doing that, do me a favor. Look through it. If you think this is a book that belongs in your library, do the author write and buy a copy. If you don't, then there's no, there's, there's no problem because you're not going to use it. If you think this is something you're going to use, understand that it took a lot of work to put together and, you know, get yourself a copy of it. But there's also nothing wrong with sitting around on a USB stick for hard times, so to speak. Let's talk a little bit about distilling. Didn't surprise me when I saw this on an Australian site, because in Australia and in New Zealand, it's legal to distill small amounts of alcohol. There's a big movement to make it legal here, just like home brewing and making wine is legal here. There are a lot of people doing it, and I don't just mean people making shine and running it for the Hells Angels and stuff like that, like you see on TV. I mean, there are a lot of people doing small amounts of distilling in their house, And I think the government would smack you down if they happened to find you, but I don't think they really, in, in essence, care about what you're doing in your own home as long as you're not selling it. That's the people they're after. They're manufacturing for sale. That doesn't mean it's risk-free. If there was some other reason that they entered your home and found that, they would probably use it against you. It is a crime, and you are not supposed to do it. There's a lot of things we're not supposed to do that we do. Just saying. Um, so please be careful if you're dabbling in distillation at all. I wouldn't be real public about it or anything like that, but I think it's a valuable enough skill that it's worth learning how to do. Let me just put it to you that way. And I think this gives a lot of information about ways that it's done in different places. I can't give you my full opinion. I heard about it today. I downloaded the, the PDF today, and I just did a cursory quick scroll through Um, I also think part of the reason I'm willing to release this PDF, I'm not really releasing it, I'm just telling you where you can go get it, is it is already out there, and the quality's not that great. Again, it's clearly a photocopy, like somebody said that I photocopied the whole book. I do, and I want to say something, I do think this type of behavior is a problem, but I think it can also be a solution. It all depends on how it's used. Um, if it's used like, don't buy this, you can get it for free here, and you're an idiot if you buy it, you're screwing over the person that made the content. If it's, look, somebody's already done this, and we just accept that it was done, and look at it and see if it makes sense for you. See it as like a free sample. And if you like it, 
then be willing to invest in the content creator. I think that that has value. And I think preserving it in electronic com, con, uh, format, uh, for the person that can't afford it, um, but is not really using it. Just saying like, man, you know, one day we might need to know how to do this. Uh, I don't think that's, that's a poor use either. Because I don't think that's costing the author money. So I think you should look at it this way. With not just this guy, but anything like this. If something's copyrighted material, but there's a free electronic version of it somewhere that the author hasn't specifically stated that's okay, if you're going to partake in that, ask yourself a question. If this wasn't here, and it was this good, would I buy it? If the answer is yes, you know what to do. Be ethical. Buy it. Exchange value for value. If the answer is, hell no, this isn't good enough for me to buy, then you shouldn't really have a problem deleting it. Unless it's just that thing, like, you know, like keeping that USB stick with all that data on it, I understand. It makes sense, and again, it's already out there. But really think about it before you take that step. If it's valuable enough to keep, Maybe it's valuable enough to purchase. And if somebody says, well, I want an electronic format, it's not, av and I did look, it's not available as a Kindle download. Uh, or, you know, a Nook or something like that. It's only available on hard copy. Well, fine. Buy it. Buy it. And then you have every right in the world to save and read the electronic version to your heart's content because you've paid for the property. Just saying. Something to think about, because there's a lot of stuff out there like that. I just felt like if I was going to teach you that little trick, and I even have, I'll put a link to the video too, that shows you how to do this, how to find these PDFs, you'll find that way a lot of really great stuff that you would never find just by doing a regular Google search. But you'll also find a lot of stuff that's copyrighted. And I can tell you for a fact, I found a lot of copyrighted material that way. I've read through it, and I've said, this is shit. I'm glad I didn't buy this book, and I've thrown it away. And I found a lot of stuff where I went, this is really good stuff, and I've made a purchase because of it. I'm just suggesting that since I'm going to show you how to do this, you think about the ethics on the other side of it. Because part of why we're in such shit today in this society is we've got into a what's-in-it-for-me-at-the-expense-of-others mentality. And as long as I don't know the person I'm screwing over, it's okay. Please try not to do that in your daily lives. Let's take one more and we'll wrap up. Hey, Jack, how are you? It's John from New Hampshire. I'm just giving you a call to ask you a question about a seed coating. Uh, I was about to put down a cover crop of clover and timothy hay and uh, something else <laughs> for my uh, for my chickens to forage on. And I went to my feed store and bought a couple of bags of, of uh, seed. And I was reading the back when I got home. It says it's coated with all vantage with Aquamond from Bayer. So instinctively, I just want to take it back anyway because I don't want to give Bayer my money. But uh, do you think there's any bad effects from uh, using a seed coated with uh, all vantage with Aquabond from Bayer? So I guess that's the question. Thanks. Love the show. Bye. First, hey, John. John actually came to the first ever workshop at the TSP uh, Homestead. He came all the way from New Hampshire, and I want to publicly thank you for doing that. I also think you were the guy that I sent home with a big Sistema bruise, if I remember right. You're the big boxer guy, I think. And uh, so I think John is the guy that posted a picture of the bruise on his stomach from a Sistema punch, which he was a big guy and he could take it. If that's not you, John, I'm sorry. There was a couple of big guys, and I might have got on that night we had a few beers, and I might have mixed you up. But I think you're that, that guy, too, um, on your question. Now, I'd never heard of this crap before. 
but I had a pretty good idea of uh, of what it looked like, uh, and, and I wasn't wrong. Um, let me read to you what this shit is. I had to look it up. It's on AlliedSeed.com's website. All Vantage Seed Company uh, with Aquabond. Um, let me read the two parts of it. All Vantage is an advanced seed coating system for superior application of legume inoculants, fungicide treatment, seed coloring, and nutrient packages to promote better stand establishment. The All Vantage coating system begins with a specifically formulated polymer, which is called Adhere 108, that acts as a superior binding agent to provide consistent uniform coverage of the seed. The special binding properties of Adhere 108 reduce dust off of the coated seed, and it is completely safe to handle and transport. Coatings are available in the industry standards of 8 to 10% and 34%. Custom coatings are also available. And they have seed colored blue, red, and green in a little picture. Aquabond. Okay, Aquabond is a revolutionary new seed enhancement that is both plant and environmentally friendly, at least according to them. They wouldn't say it's, it, it's, it's both plant and environmentally derogatory, would they? We don't know. Uh, Aquabond is a water-absorbing polymer that holds water that would normally be lost to percolation or evaporation from the soil and then releases the water back to the seed as needed, allowing the seed to germinate and grow during dry spells until additional moisture is received. Okay, Adhere 108, that one bugs me a little bit. Our specially formulated proprietary polymer, Adhere 108, is a superior binding agent that maximizes the effectiveness of seed treatments and coatings. So it's, it's polymer glue that glues crap to the outside of seeds. The only word that really bothered me in that whole thing is fungicide. Because I don't like killing fungus, because the fungus is necessary to be among us. Uh, the, the, the fear we have of fungus is what's caused all the fungal problems. You kill all the fungus, and then, gee, only the bad ones show up. Well, that's the way it works. That's how all stuff works. But it's probably just a, a very small amount, if at all. I don't know that it's just, it can be used for that. Since you, were, you mentioned clover, what you probably have is a pre-inoculated clover. You probably have the bacteria that the clover need, the rhizomial bacteria the clover needs to do its thing. And I probably wouldn't be real worried about it. Would I, would I maybe source my stuff from a different place next time and go with a more organic product? Yeah, but would I throw this away? I'd probably use it. With one thing I'd have to say. Find out what the seed varieties are. I don't know of a GMO clover, but I, a Timothy Hay, I don't know about that one. But my guess is the Timothy hay is probably not coated. It's probably just a clover. If it's just a clover, I wouldn't worry too much. If it's the hay or any other like alfalfa or anything like that, make sure you're not dealing with a GM product, right? A genetically modified product. As long as you're not and the traits aren't something you don't want to introduce into your property, but some kind of hybrid or something like that, I would go ahead and use it and look for a different answer next time. Uh, of all the, the, the things that they put into and on food, this one's about as benign as it gets. It's a coating designed to help the seed take up water and provide the bacteria that a legume needs to do its thing in a symbiotic relationship in, in the ground. The fact that it's using a proprietary polymer doesn't really enthrall me and make me feel good about it. Um, but from what I can see in the, uh, the investigating I've done, 
I'm far more worried about the seed that's inside the coating than the coating itself. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I could do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you